0: Time at a children's camp. I didn't tell them why I was gonna do it. I snuck out the side of the chapel, came in the back, about scared everybody to death. I, I told him, I said, You think you can escape the Holy Spirit by being in the back? Surprise! Anyway. Sermon this morning is a roller coaster ride, and of course our Texas Nehemiah 13. Every year. More than 300 million people ride roller coasters and amusement parks here in the United States. There are over 760 coasters throughout the country generating more than $9 billion each year. Now the average time that you spend in queue waiting to ride a roller coaster at Six Flags Over Texas averages about about 40 minutes. Now sometimes it may be longer or shorter but that's averaging it out. So in summertime you can bump that up to maybe an hour and an hour and a half. So about for an hour I'm standing in line extremely hot. They'll sell you water for five dollars a bottle and let's just say some people don't consider personal hygiene before they go to the park. Uh, it can get quite, well, smelly. But we do that. A lot of people do it. 300, 300 million. Now, the population of the United States is a little over 331 million, according to the census back in April of last year. Have you ever ridden a roller coaster, anybody? Oh, all right. Did you enjoy the ride? immensely was it worth the wait (laughs) you wait all that time to get on a ride that lasts maybe for a minute two minutes you go up you go down sometimes you go backwards upside down some of them have corkscrews now some coasters go as fast as 75 to 80 miles an hour all sorts of things going on but when the ride is over after all that fun and excitement and thrill, when it's all over, you end up in the same exact place in which you started. Because, besides the excitement of the ride, there's no real value in a roller coaster. I mean, it takes you nowhere, takes up time, your time, takes up a lot of space uses a lot of materials that could be used for building more useful structures but you end up right back in the same place if we if you are not careful your life work church will become just like a roller coaster ride full of thrills and excitement but in the end you end up in the same Place in which you started. You go to a church camp, been to many of them. Preteen, teenagers, youth, excellent speakers, excellent music, worship music, completely cut off from the rest of the world, so I, I don't watch any news. I'm completely tied in the Word of God the whole week, and I have one of those mountaintop experiences. The same thing can happen in worship service. You, you feel the presence of God. You get so wrapped up into it. But if you're not careful, it will come just like a roller coaster ride. That yeah, you had a lot of fun and a thrill and excitement, and you learned a lot of things. But in the end, you end up right back to where you started. If your life becomes like that, you'll do nothing more than maintain the roller coaster. You will not become what God wants you to be. In other words, it's like the definition of insanity, doing the same thing over and over again, but expecting a different result. And you'll never break free and experience the life that God intended you to have. Nehemiah 13. The people end up in the same place in which they started. Remember the covenant they made back in chapter 10? They made four promises. They promised to submit to God's word. They had promised to live in a manner that was distinct from surrounding nations. They promised to observe the Sabbath as God commanded. And they promised to take care of God's temple, his house. But we see in chapter 13 they promised to do all that but in chapter 13 they're right back to where they started now there is a bit of ambiguity about the exact order of events in chapter 13 however we can get a good idea of the general time frame look at verses six and seven but during all this time i was not in jerusalem for in the 32nd year of artaxerxes king of babylon i had gone to the king After some time, however, I asked leave from the king, and I came to Jerusalem and learned all about the evil that Elisha had done for Tobiah by preparing a room for him in the courts of the house of God. Now we know from chapter 2 that Nehemiah originally traveled to Jerusalem in the 20th year reign of King Artaxerxes. So he had been serving as governor for 12 years. Nehemiah, being governor, probably returned to his duties in Susa And sometime later we don't know exactly when Nehemiah retires from his service for the king and returns to Jerusalem one point though the fact that he asked for permission to return implies that he was not expected to go or perhaps to not return as governor and surely the leaders in Jerusalem were not expecting him there during his absence the people had turned away from their commitments and he's returning to Jerusalem that was different than the one that he left a few years earlier. Now just to step step ahead of myself, verses 1 through 3 actually happen before verse 4 and following. Bear with me for a moment. Let's look at the first three verses. Submission to God's word restored. Look at verse 1. On that day, or at that time, they read aloud from the book of Moses. Once again, on that day, what is he talking about? Well, surely it was the same day as a great worship gathering that we read about last week in chapter 12. But look at verse 4. Now, prior to this. So everything that we're reading in verses 1 through 3 actually happened after everything we read from verse 4 in folly. and folly. That's different for us because here in the United States and Western civilization, we like everything in chronological order. You know, But this is not the case. I know I had to sit there and stare at myself for a minute. I get my mind around that. But that's what's going on here. And we read in verse 3 that when they heard the law, they excluded all foreigners from from Israel. The encouraging fact here in chapter 13 is when they heard the word of God, they observed it. They were obedient to it when they first heard it. We have to remind ourselves the Bible constantly emphasizes obedience. It warns against disobedience. And God's revelation is always related to making his will known. That's verses 1 through 3 but what happened before that well look at verse four you see that tobiah is expelled and the temple is cleansed now prior to this in verse four elisha who was appointed over the chambers of the house of god once again this is taking place before verses one through three and when nehemiah gets back to jerusalem what does he find the high priest himself has profaned the house of God by taking a place that was used for holy purposes and turning it into a living quarters for the man who'd been the enemy of the Jews, re- rebuilding and coming back to Jerusalem in the first place. He had been against them since the rebuilding project even begun. Why does leadership, the high priest, do this? Look at the last part of verse 4. Being related or close to Tobiah. He was related to him. So he took a room or a chamber in the temple that was supposed to be used for one purpose, you can read about it in those verses, and let Tobiah move in there. But this is not the first time that Eliashib had conspired with Judah's enemies through intermarriage. Look at verses 28 and 29 towards the end of the chapter. Even one of the sons of Jehada, the son of Elisha, the high priest, was a son-in-law of Sambelot the Horonite. We've heard that name before, haven't we not? Sambelot, he was a great enemy of the Jews. So I drove him away from me. And then he has this prayer. Remember me, excuse me, remember them, O my God, because they have defiled the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. And that's verses 28 and 29. What happened? They had promised to take care of the temple. A covenant which the leaders signed with their signatures. And yet the high priest himself does this. Maybe it's just easier to keep the peace in the family if you allow certain things to slide. We see the tithes restored verses 10 through 14. Verse 10 he says, he discovered that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them. They're no longer making provision to the temple. Once again, neglecting the house of God, which they promised not to do. When that happened, the Levites and the singers in the text tell them they had to return to the fields to take care and provide for their families. This results in corporate worship of the people being impaired. The people supposed to lead the worship now scattered out all over the place, trying to take care of their families, so they weren't there to lead worship. And in verse 11, he goes, I reprimanded or I continued, I contended with the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? You just told not too long ago that you take care of it. What is going on? Now, his response, you see in those verses, 10 through 14, is twofold. He directly confronts the sin and he puts a plan into place to make sure it will not happen. Again, he calls all the Levites back and the singers back, and immediately the people start to respond by once again bringing their tithes into the storehouses. And then in verse 14, another prayer. Remember me for this, O my God, and do not blot out my loyal deeds. This is one of those prayers in which Nehemiah asked God to remember him. Now, each of those may seem a little self-serving to you and to me, but given what we know about Nehemiah throughout the entire book, his acknowledging his own frailty and his total dependence upon God. Well, that's not all they forgot to do. Look at verses 15 through 22. The Sabbath restored. Look at verse 15. I saw in Judah some who were treading wine presses on the Sabbath. Now, can I just pause here for a second? How would you feel if you're Nehemiah, and as you go back, you're finding all these things out? And you were there when they signed the covenant. You were there when they sung praises to God, that great Thanksgiving procession. Remember that we read about last week? And now he's back there. And they're right back to where they started. But once again, Nehemiah confronts the sin. He says he reprimanded the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing you are doing by profaning the Sabbath day? He reminds the people that's the reason why they have been taken in exile. Look at verse 18. Did not your fathers do the same so that our God brought us and on this city all this trouble? Yet you are adding to the wrath of Israel by profaning the Sabbath. <laughs> there, apparently there was a group of people who didn't really recognize the seriousness of their sin. They thought they could get away with selling their goods outside the city walls. But Nehemiah saw that too. Look at verse 19. It came about that just as it grew dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded the doors should be shut, and they should not open until after the Sabbath. But that wasn't good enough. Look back in verse 19. Then I stationed some of my servants at the gates, so that no load would, be entered, would enter on the Sabbath. Don't need to shut the gates, but he put people there to watch to make sure what was going on. Now they're profaning the Sabbath, which is something, once again, they had promised not to to do. Nehemiah, once again, prays to God, asking God to remember him. And we see Nehemiah's humility here, his understanding of his need of God's grace and his mercy. Look at verse 22. Remember me, O my God, and have compassion on me according to the greatness of your loving kindness. Oh, I love that phrase. Greatness of your loving kindness. So There's a passage in the Bible that says, Your great loving kindness leads us to repentance. His loving kindness, His patience, His love, His mercy draws us because when you're convicted of your sin and you realize you've broken everything there is, the book of James says, You make one part of the law, you broken it all. And you realize your desperate need for the Savior. And he welcomes you in with open arms and wraps his loving arms around you and welcomes you home. You are experiencing the great loving kindness of God, and there's nothing like it. Now, verses 23 through 29, mixed marriages, once again, are forbidden. Look at verse 23. There's nothing. He found this again. I also saw the Jews had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. In spite of their promises not to do that, they continued to intermarry with surrounding nations. And as you read those verses, look at them, you will find out that he says, your children now, as a result, cannot read the Hebrew or understand the Aramaic. They can't even participate in worship because they don't know the language once again we see him confront the sin now verse 25 look at it look there everybody look down i want you to see this i'm not making look i contended with them and cursed them and struck some of them and pulled out their hair and made them swear by god that seems a little rough don't you think pull out their hair look at you looking at it saying, well, that's what it says it seems to me that he may have took this confrontation just a little far but I can understand it each time he's walking finding this out he's naturally getting frustrated as you would it's like when you tell your child you need to do this and you tell them and they don't listen to you and they continue not listen to you we get frustrated do we not haven't I told you to clean up your room And what they usually do, oh, like you're telling them to go out and plow a field of 40 acres or something. But it does, once again, this is not approval for us to go out threatening to pull up people's hairs, all right? But it does show us that sometimes drastic actions are needed when somebody is about to sin in a matter that's going to do significant and lasting harm. And he saw that. And he puts into place a specific plan to keep the people from their sin. And he reminds them. First of all, he reminds them about what happened to Solomon. His downfall. Look at verse 26. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, regarding sin regarding these things? Yet among the nations there was no king like him, and he was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, the foreign woman caused him even to sin he reminds them, the great king solomon his downfall because of that now this is not racial driven this is trying to keep the faith pure and we talked about this uh, two sundays ago you got to be careful that the person you're going to marry is a believer because it can cause significant problems He made them swear a public oath after he, what did it say? He hit them and pulled out their hair. He had to swear a public oath before God and for everybody that you shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor take their daughters for your sons, or for yourselves. You see that in verse 25. You see how this is a great big roller coaster ride? They came, they acknowledged their sin. They wept, they worshipped for long periods of time. They had this great huge celebration that took place back in chapter 12. Nehemiah goes away, he's not there, and they go right back to where they started. Verses 30-31, through Nehemiah closes the book by summarizing the plans he put in place to help the people remain faithful to god not only did he tell the people how to remain faithful to god but he tells us in verse 31 that he was doing that in his own personal life by providing for the needs of the worshiping community out of his own personal resources so he said i'm doing this myself and he prays asking god to remember him once again and i have to admit to you this is not the way i want a nehemiah to end It could have ended right up chapter 12, and I've been perfectly happy. Look at them. Look at what happened. But see, the Bible is brutally honest. Brutally honest. And tells us what really happened and what we like to see happen. You know, in many ways, Nehemiah has been a picture of the entire history of Israel. And if we're honest, it's also a picture of our spiritual lives, individually and corporately. We have times of brokenness that require a major rebuilding effort. And now, that rebuilding effort, we have these mountaintop experiences that naturally break out in spontaneous praise and worship. But we can't live in those mountaintops forever. We have to come down to the valleys. And those valleys are difficult for us. We feel that we're so far from God. And we find it hard to live in obedience to him. And we drift away. It's easy to come into this building today. The church building. Because you are the church. You understand that, right? We just happen to meet here together. It's easy to be picked up. Loved on. Inspired. You hear God and you know that he's here. you, You get that. But then you go out the door. And you're in the world now. A world that opposes anything of God. Just take a look around. And we find it hard to live. We find it hard and difficult to live in that. But the point I want to make to you this morning is the importance of being faithful to God even after we fail Him. So, how do we remain faithful to God? Now, this list is not comprehensive. There's just a few things I jotted down. The first thing you have to do is turn your preferences or beliefs into convictions. See, a belief is something you will argue argue about. uh, Having a conviction about something, you will die for that. The Jews of Nehemiah, they had their preferences. They had their beliefs, but no convictions. They expressed those preferences in the covenant with God, and I'm sure they had every intent on following through. But for at last, the priest, the high priest, as I said earlier, it was probably easier to just keep the peace in the family by allowing Tobiah to have that room in the temple. The people knew that they were to contribute to the operation of the temple; they promised to take care of it, but they were struggling financially. So gradually they stopped giving. And pretty soon, everybody just stopped giving altogether. They knew they weren't to intermarry, but the benefits they received from those such arrangements was very difficult to give up. Ultimately, dear beloved, it's your convictions that will guard your behavior or determine your conduct. Those things that you will die for. Sanctification is just simply another word for developing conviction. When you come to faith in Christ, you are justified. The blood of Christ covers you. In that moment, you are justified before a holy God. Not because anything you've done, but the shed blood of Christ covers your sin. So now you're in justification with God. You're, You're in a right relationship with him. But that's not it. That's just the beginning. Now it becomes a process of sanctification. Becoming more and more like Christ. Developing convictions in your heart. As you spend time with God, you experience Him. And you walk this path of faith with Him. And with other believers. You start developing convictions. In our society today, we have a lot of beliefs a lot of preferences but not many convictions anymore you see that in politics you see that in all areas of leadership it's almost like they go out look their finger and see which way the wind's blowing. and sadly it's happening in our churches and what sobers me a lot of times it happens right from the pulpit itself I was told a long time ago by Dr. Stephen Smith, he was a professor of preaching at Southwestern when I was there. He told us, gentlemen, always be careful because a mist in the pulpit is a fog in the pew. Be very careful what you say and how you say it. So turn your preferences and your beliefs into convictions Not something you just believe, but something you will not move from. Like the old monk, Martin Luther, who is credited with starting the Protestant Reformation. When they told him to recant, he said, from the word of God, this I cannot move from. He was willing to die for the truth of the word of God. Next, you need to develop a plan or a strategy. Because remaining faithful to God is not going to happen on its own. Each of us have areas of our lives which we struggle in. To remain faithful i mean we all have those struggles in our lives these own areas that we're trying to develop convictions so your plan and strategy may not look like mine so on and so forth but the point is you have to have a specific plan to serve as a gatekeeper to protect you from reverting to sin in those areas in which you struggle and also to have positive steps that you can take to develop ways to follow God in our everyday lives. It does not happen. And you'll never get done. It's an ongoing process. As you walk with God, some areas of your life, you'll get okay, and you're moving on, but there's always something new to do, something new to learn, something new to apply to your life. It's kind of like knowing who God is. I mean, we could... Understand God and all his fullness here on earth and I would tell you he's no longer God because a God who is supernatural and divine by definition we can't understand him with our finite minds we just can't comprehend it next you have to believe some the convictions develop a plan or strategy and next take pause to connect the Sabbath now The Sabbath was a physical rest that is based upon God's work back in creation. And on the seventh day, he what? He rested. There needs to be a limit to your work. A time when you simply let go, that you recognize your limitations and be content with that and rest. I'll put myself out there. When I get real tired because I've been working too much, guess what happens to me? I become irritated and irritable. And probably say things I shouldn't say. We need rest. And as we look at our life here in the year 2021 in America, we have all these modern conveniences that's supposed to have us allow us to have more time, but yet <laughs> for every little time we get, we plan something else. We have washing machines, dryers, dishwashers. My girls told me one time, Dad, we need dishwash." I said, I have three of them, Brooke, Allison, and Madeline. (laughs) They didn't like that too much. But we need our rest. And I think that's one problem in our society. We go 24-7 constantly full blast that we're robbing ourselves of not just the physical rest, but the mental and spiritual rest that you need. Sabbath for them was a time to remember what God did when he brought his people out of Egypt. He did something for them that they could not do themselves. We need to do the same thing. When's the last time you sat down with a piece of paper and a pen or on your word processor, iPad, whatever it is, and you just thought about your salvation experience? Go back to that moment in time. What was going on in your life? Remember what God did in that moment. I also encourage you to journal every day. Because as you go through the year, just think about it, if you're journaling at the beginning of this year, you can look back at the beginning of the year and you can see how God has worked. Our ladies pray every Wednesday at 1:30 in the afternoon. And Miss Bev sends me an update and I, I go back and see, we well, have been praying for this and praying for this, but God did this and God did that. That's tangible evidence. As we've been praying, God is moving, God is answering. When we do not take time to connect with God like that, we become much more vulnerable to sin and our tendency will be to stray from God. They needed, and God knew that they needed time, Jews needed time with their fellow Jews. We're created beings, relational beings, by, by our very nature. We were never intended to live in isolation. 2020 should have showed you that right off the bat. We need each other. You need fellow believers to help you remain faithful to God. You need that in your life. The book of Nehemiah, thirteen chapters, and there's no way that the sermon series has covered everything you can learn. I hope it has wet your appetite to go back and look, not only at Nehemiah, but also at Ezra. It shows us that it's important to put safeguards into place and in practice in our lives. To remain faithful to God is not easy, but if we will turn our preferences, our beliefs into convictions, and we'll develop a plan, and we'll take time to pause and connect with God and with each other, it's something we can possibly do even if we don't do it perfectly. And guess what? You're not going to do it perfectly because no one in this room, including myself, is perfect. We are sinners in need of a Savior. But this I want to tell you in conclusion. Dearly beloved, do not let your life, your spiritual life, become like a roller coaster. You come in, you go to Bible school, you hear God's word broke open, God's teaching you, you may get convicted of a sin, you may get encouragement, all that, and then you come in here and God is speaking to you through the music and through the preaching of the word and you just have one of those great times. Or we put it like this, I was blessed at worship service this morning. But if we're not careful, when we worship, you realize it's not just a one-way conversation. God is speaking back to you, encouraging you, but also convicting you. Because he wants you to be like his son and that's what he's trying to do he's working for us to be in the image of his son becoming more and more like Christ and if you're not careful you'll walk out of this place sometimes as quick as the afternoon or evening you'll be back to the same place in which you started unless you take some steps to make sure that doesn't happen spiritual life can be like a roller coaster it can be full of excitement and thrilled, but stuck in the same place. No growth. I encourage you, I exhort you, refuse to remain stagnant. Let sanctification begin and take hold in your life. And my prayer is for you and me that we will become more like Christ, both as individuals and corporately as a church. God has been speaking and is speaking to you now. I don't know exactly what it is because he's speaking to your heart. I don't know what's in your heart, only God does. But are you going to listen and respond? Not just in this moment. Pray and ask him, God, I want to change this in my life. Show me what I must do. And I can come through prayer, reading of the word and other believers are you sick of riding a roller coaster Sunday after Sunday you get excited get pumped up only by Wednesday you're feeling let down confused and tired and somewhat angry don't let that happen to you I don't know every pastor in this country. I don't know what's going on in every church. But based on our society and what I see happening, church in America has been riding this great roller coaster. What can we do to draw people in? What can we say to tickle their ears? What's the next big thing we can do? And then we have this idea that if I run over to Bellevue because they have any spiritual revival, and what did you do? And I try to copy that here, that's going to work. That's not the case because each body is different. It has its own people, it has its own context, its own problems. Oh, sure, there's principles you can draw from, but you just can't take something and copy and paste and put it over here. So what's God asking you to do? And I'll end with this. When you're serious with this. He's going to ask you to step out of your comfort zone. Way out of your comfort zone. Well, Tim, you trust me for your eternal salvation. I don't call the equipped, I equip the called. And I'm asking you to do this. Are you going to trust me? Or are you going to walk away? And it scares me how many times that's put in my life and how I answer sometimes. How can I tell God no after all what he's done for me is currently doing and what he promises to do in the future my prayer is once again that your life will never be a roller coaster ride oh sure there'll be thrill and excitement yes but we won't end up in the same place you know this world is not your home not my home Yes, I want to be here and experience life with you people and the the, the flock here and my grandchildren. But you know what? At the end of the day, I'm not getting back here like I was. I'm I'm going somewhere else. My destination is somewhere else. And on that day, there won't be no more suffering, no more goodbyes, no more sin. It will be completely eradicated. I have no idea what that looks like, but I can't wait to find out. And we'll see everyone who's gone on before us. Wow. Can you imagine the reunion? All the ones, the faithful ones read out in the Bible, we'll see them. But then, just close your eyes with me, and with prayer, but then, in a moment, on that day, you will see the very one who took the nails for you and you can look him in the eye, fall down before him, say, thank you, Lord. My, oh my, what a day that will be. Are you ready? The people around you know we have the greatest mission in the world. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the story of your people so long ago. And Father, we can't cast stones at them or make fun of them because we realize even though this story took place in a different context, a different place of the world so long ago, it's still a picture of us and our tendencies. Human condition has not changed. But Father, we know that you weren't content with things the way they were when you sent your Son. So we may have salvation a relationship with you and be able to talk to you right now in this way, approaching the throne of grace to find help in that time of need. father you sent me here a little over five years almost five years ago i've come to know these these brothers sisters of mine i come to love them and father i pray oh god they would hear your voice they would be obedient to it father help me to listen to you that still small voice. I don't want my life to become just a roller coaster ride. I don't want this church to experience just a roller coaster ride. Father, we long to know you. We long to be more like Christ. Mold us and shape us as you see fit. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with me, please?